You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Welcome to this special podcast from The Good GP on the novel coronavirus 2019. This is a rapidly changing clinical environment, so the information presented here is current as at the 4th of February 2020. Today we'll be discussing this virus with two experts on the disease, Professor Paul Effler, Medical Coordinator at the Communicable Disease Control Directorate at the Department of Health in WA, and Dr David Spears, QE2 Network Head for the Department of Microbiology. Welcome David and welcome Paul. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, Tim. Okay, David, um, perhaps just a quick bit of background on the coronavirus. It can cause everything from the common cold to SARS, as I understand it. Uh, that's right. So um, we've known about coronaviruses for many years, and uh, a number of them uh, cause a very common cold illness, which many of us have already uh, suffered from without actually knowing, because it would have been just passed off, as I say, as a common cold or a flu-like uh, illness. These viruses have been circulating in humans for many, many years and uh, have adapted to not make um, uh, people very sick. When new viruses come into the human population, and uh, good examples of this are SARS and the other coronavirus uh, called MERS, they're not so well adapted to living in humans. And the consequence of that is they tend to make people more sick compared to the coronaviruses that have been in humans and adapted over many years. So we have this spectrum of mild to potentially very severe disease from the same sort of group of uh, viruses. And the feature of SARS and MERS and now the new uh, novel uh, coronavirus is it's thought that they've all been introduced into humans very recently uh, from an animal source. Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of um, part of this sort of virus. And I think there's a lot of discussion on how it may have begun. We know the location that it began in, in uh, a seafood market in Wuhan, China. What are some of the theories about how a virus like this sort of um, picks up and, and starts within the human population? So it's thought that uh, the reservoir for these viruses are actually in the wild bat populations. And bats are distributed all around the world, uh, as you know. And uh, these markets often capture um, uh, wild animals and uh, transport them to the markets. And it's thought that uh, the bats, potentially through the, um, the bat guano, uh, have infected some of these animals, which are subsequently caught and then sold in the markets. So these animals work as a vehicle to bring it into the markets, which then brings it in contact with humans. And that sets up the cycle for how a coronavirus living happily in a bat in the bush ends up infecting people in the middle of a city. So theoretically, would that be, say, an ingestion or would it be an inhalation of, of sort of uh, fluid from butchery? Or So uh, the other uh, feature of coronaviruses is that they infect both the respiratory tract as well as the gut. So it's possible that transmission happens through uh, respiratory contact uh, from these animals, but it's also possible through the slaughtering process uh, that uh, there is uh, faecal contamination uh, of the animals, and that's how it's transmitted to humans uh, as well. And then when we talk about, say, human-to-human transmission, you know, in theory, is, is that happening before the virus is transmitted to humans, or is it happening afterwards? Uh, it's been looked at, uh, even for the novel coronavirus, they've actually gone back and looked at when they thought the entry of the virus into the human population occurred. And by doing some fancy genetic work, it looks like 
either November or December of 2019 is probably where it jumped from uh, uh, the animal into the human. And by looking at the genomes, they're all very closely related. So that means one of two things. Either there was a single event where this happened and then all spread amongst humans came from a single person, or there was several introductions into humans around the same time of, of identical viruses, so you can't tell the difference between the two. So that just shows that because of the way viruses evolve over time, the most recent uh, uh, genomes of the virus are only slightly different to the original one uh, that was found, showing that it was a very recent introduction and there hasn't been much evolution of the virus to this point. Okay, thank you. So, Paul, what do we know about its infectivity? Um, presumably, we're not going to be bitten by too many bats here in Perth. What, what can you tell us about the spread? Hopefully not. Um, the studies that have been done about how many other people each case uh, infects, called the R or not, is uh, somewhere around lower estimates are in the twos or high ones, up to four that have been said. So that would be a pretty infectious virus, actually. This is based on the situation in Wuhan, though, and that's a, a very crowded city in wintertime. And whether that reproductive number would be appropriate for other contexts, I, I still think remains to be seen. Okay, so from the just for our listeners, uh, expand upon the R naught for us, the concept? Yeah, so the concept is essentially you do a calculation that if you are infectious and you go into an absolutely susceptible, naive population, how, on average, how many people do you infect? And so for measles, that's very high. That can be 16 or something for each case, measles being the most infectious disease known to humans, really. And then for other, other viruses and pathogens, uh, lower than that. This would place it above flu, as, uh, you know, is, if those are not values hold, I think. Um, and so it would not be surprising to see, in my mind, to see ongoing transmission uh, with that kind of R0. Okay. And how much, you mentioned that um, the, the temperature, the proximity and so forth, um, how much sort of difference do you see between countries like China um, and Perth in summer, for example, um, for things like flu? Um, how much of a drop-off would you see and what guide could that give us to the infectivity? Well, David's really an expert in flu and its transmissibility uh, in winter as opposed to summer. What are, you, what are your thoughts? That was a good handle. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Good uh, so I, I think for this uh, novel uh, coronavirus, I, I think the, the worry is that it will persist in um, the Northern Hemisphere uh, countries uh, and perhaps the uh, countries around the equator for the coming months. And uh, as uh, Australia moves into its winter season, I think the conditions uh, will be more conducive uh, to spread uh, of respiratory viruses. Now that's clearly the case for influenza and other respiratory viruses like um, respiratory syncytial virus or RSV. But there would be no reason to believe that it wouldn't also be con more conducive to the spread of something like this novel co coronavirus as well. Great. Thanks, David. Tim. Just on that note, you, you both have seen, you've had the benefit of seeing SARS and MERS evolve, uh, and it would seem they're not sort of, they've not evolved to the same scale as this virus already. Um, what do you think we can learn from the SARS and MERS sort of experience, and, and you know, what actually applies to this coronavirus as, as an epidemic? Well, I th for me, it's the differences that really stand out. And 
uh, you know, I was involved in the SARS response when I was uh, working in the United States. And it, what I would say s strikes me is it seemed like SARS was driven, the transmission overall was lower than this current virus, but there was the occasion of super spreaders, as we called them, as some individuals that can infect a lot of people. And I understand from reading some studies that have been done that statistically, mathematically, they think that kind of spread is easier to contain than one that has a more even spread, uh, but, but a, a slightly higher rate, than, lower rate than a super spreader, but higher than that on, on average. The other thing is the severity um, seems to be, this illness seems to be less severe than SARS was as far as the lethality uh, that's occurring. And that's not to say there haven't been a, a number of deaths, but you know, the, right now the overall case fatality rate is somewhere around 2% with the data being uh, released from China. We have to think that's probably skewed because there's probably a lot of uh, more mild illnesses that haven't been tested or weren't even thought of to be tested. So the, the case fatality rate may, may even go down as we go forward. So those are the two differences from SARS uh, that I see. Uh, there's also some other um, potential differences as well. What was a feature of SARS is that the teeters of the virus that could be recovered from the respiratory tract uh, increased as uh, time went by uh, with the illness and uh, could even have been undetectable early in the illness so that uh, repeat testing was sometimes needed to be done. So in terms of ability to spread within a population, if you're peaking your um, ability to transmit uh, later in your course, uh, when you're sicker and perhaps in bed, uh, you're less likely to be passing it around compared to someone who has a higher level of virus in their respiratory tract, but it's a milder illness, it's not making you unwell, and you've got more ability to move around uh, in the population. So from the uh, limited information that's become available so far, it's looking like the uh, amount of virus you can detect is there from an earlier stage in the illness, which in theory could lead to uh, a greater ability to be able to spread within a population compared to something like SARS. Now, there's not enough information to conclude uh, 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 such um, uh, thoughts, but uh, it would certainly be something to uh, look at with serial sampling of people over time to see how infective they are from earlier on in their illness. Yeah, that was something we were talking about offline earlier, which is and it's quite interesting to think about in terms of an epidemic, that uh, you may have differences in fatality rates and infectivity, and you know a higher fatality rate may actually mean a lower infectivity in lots of ways because it's making people sicker and, and less likely to spread, uh, whereas uh, perhaps a less potent infection may be much more likely to spread because it, it's sort of moving around sort of the less less unwell. Yeah, I think people need to uh, separate in their minds uh, what is uh, transmissibility and what is severity of an illness because they're actually two very different things. Mm. And uh, you cannot make the conclusion that the more severely unwell you are, the more likely you are to transmit uh, to other people with this uh, novel coronavirus. Yeah, it's a really important message out there. So with that in mind, what chances do you think we have of preventing it from replicating in the Australian population? Well, it's, it's going to be a major challenge. I mean, obviously, at this point in time, we are focused on trying to identify uh, every case that is in Australia, uh, get them to appropriate treatment, but also get them isolated so they can't transmit and then follow their contacts. 
and make sure that we can isolate them if they become symptomatic or at least keep them from venues where they might uh, in infect a lot of other people. So that's really our strategy. It's been successful in the past, like uh, with SARS. Um, but uh, given the size of the outbreak in China right now and the fifth of the world's population lives there and it seems to be fairly widespread, I, th I think it, it still remains to be seen whether that'll be successful. We just have to give it our best shot and hope that things like having a very hot summer help reduce uh, the potential for transmission <laughs> in the community. At least one upside, huh? Um, yeah. we, we do have yeah. a bit of a window of preparation. I mean, we're in the start of February and our, we know our flu season's really not until July. Um, usually, uh, but flu always comes back to bite us. Uh, <laughs> just when we think we can uh, pick the start of a season, it, it comes and changes uh, its mind. I, I think the likelihood is, is that until we move into our window, we hopefully will have time for preparation. We'll have time to gain experience, to learn more about the virus. I think uh, it's the cold uh, northern hemisphere countries that perhaps might be feeling the most under threat at the moment and possibly the countries around uh, the equator. But I think it will work in Australia's favour um, if uh, we can have as much time as possible if it is going to come into Australia and uh, begin to spread, which has been uh, no evidence of significant spread in Australia to this point. Great. So one of the things we're all hanging out for, and I, I have asked you this question previously, but I'm going to ask it again, vaccination. That seems to be the thing that uh, everybody's looking for. Any comments? Our listeners are dying to know. I mean, GPs are going to be the ones rolling the vaccinations out. Any thoughts? Any comments on time frame? Yeah, so there's clearly a development phase, and then there has to be a safety testing phase uh, for uh, vaccines because you have to make sure vaccines are safe uh, for the uh, people you're going to administer them to. The other important factor about vaccine preparation is how you can produce enough of the vaccine to vaccinate enough of the population. Now, using influenza, for example, there's a reason the uh, committee meet to decide on the influenza strains uh, so many months ahead of the release of the vaccine, and that's because it has to be grown up in um, eggs, chicken eggs, and that is a slow process, and uh, that, which takes a number of months. So uh, depending on what vehicle could be used to grow up uh, the uh, virus or the antigen, depending on what vaccine could become available in the future, all these factors of production as well as trials to show that it is actually effective um, and also safe um, will take, um, uh, I think it will take months to do that. And, okay. You know, I'm pretty Thanks. familiar with the state's immunization program and uh, I, I just think overall it's a pretty safe bet that we won't have a vaccine for this uh, if this goes to worldwide spread before we go through our first wave. Um, I think that's probably true and so we're going to have to use other measures like social distance if it were to occur social distancing and isolation and uh, in order to try and contain spread right okay so one question we might get from gps is what should they do if they've got someone phoning up and saying they're worried they might have coronavirus so they call our reception and ask with you know what should i how should i present or yeah so that's been uh, busy uh in the last in the last few weeks and i think the first thing is to try and uh, obtain a travel history um, and right now we think the only significant risk, uh, speaking on probabilities, is from uh, being in China in the last 14 days before your illness onset. We're using 14 days as the potential incubation period. It's probably shorter than that, but that's a safety, a safety measure to go out pretty far. And then if they have that travel history, then to get an 
illness history, and if it's it's if it's pretty clear they don't need to be in hospital to be evaluated, and they're going to be evaluated at the GP. You actually want to have them identify before they come in, you know, and uh, give them a mask at the first opportunity. Take them to a room where uh, they could be in private and not exposing potentially other more vulnerable patients, and then carry on the assessment after that. Would you, I mean, I know for measles we've talked about assessing patients potentially in the car or in the car park. Is this something where you could see a value for that, Paul? Um, potentially, to, to keep one from having to uh, keep a room empty for 30 minutes afterwards and other things. And, and we are exploring, uh, trying to arrange uh, some domiciliary testing that could be done for people that are clearly uh, well enough not to need uh, hospital attention just to t take it to where they are and, and then leave them there in isolation while the test is run. Great. That's a really good idea. Um, okay. Some of these um, queries are fairly nuanced and, and a lot of the time the public just want to you know, sort of know general advice. Where, where should they go for more general advice? So the public, we're really asking them to uh, phone Health Direct because Health Direct has pretty detailed information, scripts that are constantly reviewed to try and give the public the information they need. And a lot of that, to date, in my impression, a lot of that is reassurance that people are concerned about risks that aren't uh, tangible or real and they just need to be provided that information. But if they are ill or they do uh, you know, answer questions in a certain pattern, then they are referred saying you should seek medical attention and make sure you call ahead and get that appropriate advice. But we really want to try and take the pressure off uh, clinicians for answering many of these questions that are uh, really straightforward and, and indicate the person would not be at risk at this time. Great. There's been a lot of discussion about the difference between surgical masks and P2 masks. Um, Paul, can you run us through when which is appropriate and why the difference? Okay, so that's a that's a uh, evolving situation now, but I can tell you one for sure. We think it's okay to wear surgical mask, uh, eye protection, a gown and gloves to assess a patient in your practice, um, and you know as far as talk to them, determine uh, whether they need testing and uh, and and move and moving forward if they do need hospital care. Um, up until today, really, we were we were recommending people wear a, a P2 mask or an N95, which allows a higher level of uh, protection if they were going to take a respiratory specimen. And that was based on the thought that uh, it's somewhat akin to uh, doing an aerosol generating procedure, because um, certainly that's what would be used in a hospital environment, is they would be using a P2 or N95 for those those kind of procedures. Um, again, there is some guidance coming out now that maybe that is, uh, is not necessary just for taking a swab. And I think we need to really follow the professional guidance that I expect to be out in a day or two uh, re regarding those recommendations. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so when you, you're looking at the uh, difference in the PPE or personal protective equipment that you use between droplet precautions and airborne precautions, uh, in terms of what uh, the healthcare worker puts on, the, the only difference is actually the mask. And uh, the difference between the surgical mask and the N95 mask is just the level of filtration uh, that occurs between the two. And the surgical masks are there to catch the large, uh, larger droplets, uh, for, such as for influenza and so forth. Uh, because the uh, distance between the mesh of the mask is uh, slightly uh, greater. 
and the N95 or P2 masks are a much finer weave and therefore they're to catch what's called the uh, droplet nuclei which are the small aerosolized particles that evaporate in the air after they've been expelled uh, by a patient. Now uh, these masks are great but they only work if you actually fit them properly because if you don't fit the N95 mask correctly and air's coming in and out as you breathe uh, in and out through the sides then you're actually not getting any protection. Also, if you fiddle with the mask and adjust it, uh, that destroys the activity of the mask. And if you leave them on too long and they get moist, this um, filtering protection is, uh, is removed. So there's a number of uh, factors when it comes to wearing masks. And I don't think it's correct to hang on to the difference between an N95 and a surgical mask. I think people need to be much more concerned of using them appropriately fitting them properly, doing what's called a fit test where you check that the, you actually have a seal around the bridge of your nose and around your cheeks. If, you're wearing, if you have facial hair, none of these masks will give a good seal uh, in the first place anyway. And uh, if you leave the mask on too long, your own uh, moisture in your, um, in your breath uh, wets the mask and they become less effective over time. So feature, uh, uh, Concentrating on those factors, I think, is as important as what sort of mask you've actually got on your face, to be honest. And I guess that leads into perhaps one last question for, for both of you. You know, assuming this does become a, a bigger outbreak, it, it may do, it may not. Is there anything that doctors can do to sort of protect themselves with regard to processes or, or their own health in terms of living through a, a sort of an epidemic um, as healthcare providers? Well, I think some of the things we, we spoke about, obviously, if you identify patients that are potential, uh, you know, potentially infected with this, it makes sure you keep up your infection control practices with them uh, to a very high level. And we always recommended uh, patients who have a respiratory illness, whatever it is presenting to, uh, to care, get a surgical mask uh, to try not expel in the clinic. Um, and then, obviously, uh, hand hygiene and good disinfection uh, it's good for every day, but it will also help in trying to make sure this uh, virus wouldn't be transmitted in an in a office setting as well. Yeah, right. So sticking to protocols and following the processes. Well, it's been a Excellent. fascinating discussion. Thank you both for, uh, for joining us tonight. And uh, I know you've been, both been pretty busy with this uh, sort of outbreak. We wish you well and uh, good luck with all the hard work. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. It's really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy. Thanks for having us.